What's up, everyone, and welcome to Indivisible, a show where we explore how crypto is securing freedom by design. Hey, guys, welcome. Today, we are talking to Ovi Farouk, also known as OSF. OSF is not only a very successful crypto artist, he is also a trader, and he is building a crypto media empire under his brand, Canary Labs. Together with his partners, they have developed the very successful Wrecked Guy NFT project, which has become a prolific meme and a strong community in the cultural zeitgeist of NFTs. OSF is a great example of how crypto markets and tools can allow people to combine the different aspects of their identities to step into careers that are empowering, authentic, and that drive real economic value. Our conversation today is as wide-ranging as OSF's talents. We touch on his thoughts regarding macro, the dynamics of his business partnership, what he has learned about being a leader, and much more. I hope you enjoy, and without further ado, I give you the artist known as OSF. Ovi, how are you? Thanks for being here. Uh, Doing very well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So for everyone listening in, we are recording this the day after the crazy FTX implosion. So I feel that I need to start this by, by getting your thoughts on that. I have a bit of a maybe contrarian or contrarian, depending on what circles you're in, take in that actually think uh, in the long term, it's good for the overall health of the DeFi, crypto, NFT ecosystem, um, and that it's you know kind of fleshing out over-leveraged, unregulated, centralized intermediaries, and more importantly, their association with the core of what we're, we're hoping to do here with crypto. So as a um, former trader and market participant, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Your hot take, if you will. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what a disaster, huh? Like, I, I yeah. this year has been so crazy, and what happened in June with Cel- Luna, Celsius, Three AC, um, you know, that was like a once, once every decade kind of event, and I really didn't think we would see another thing on that scale uh, this year. Like, let alone, I don't know, like three or four years. So it was really crazy to see, and it just shows like how much mismanagement there was at FTX. And so I just tweeted this earlier, actually. I was like, it's not even really a crypto thing. It's just like a complete like misuse of customer deposits. And it's a mismanagement of the business. Like it's not adhering to proper business protocols, I guess, like because FTX was domiciled in the Bahamas, they weren't subject to some regulations and that kind of stuff. So it's just, it's really, really insane to see. And it's insane to see it from someone who I think is like active within the crypto community and the, the Web3 world in terms of SBF. And he's been very vocal about certain things. and. You know, like I think those guys even bought some of the distressed assets, distressed crypto assets from Celsius, etc. Like a, a few months ago, so it's incredible to see them, you know, fall so spectacularly in the way they have. And I guess it's like everything now rides on Binance bailing them out. I don't, I actually don't think Binance will bail them out. I think we have like half of the information, and it's probably just the tip of the iceberg. I think for them to like state things so confidently, and then the next day say, oh, "Okay, we're just going to like, you know, we're folding when we're into Binance." I think it shows that it's like. A lot more than meets the eye there and it's just you know these things acquisitions take so long they take months if not years to actually complete and there's probably even like competition law 
considerations to be to be had as well. So yeah, it's really not great. Like I, I think um, it's pretty bad, but you know, at the same time, I think the crypto price action has reflected that. Like we're down thirty or forty percent now in, in most things over the last twenty four hours. How does this impact your strategy for building, if at all? I think a core number of the people within the OSF ecosystem, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, are at the front lines of being very crypto native. And yet you have ambitious, broad vision for how you'd like to expand the brand and that is predicated on users. So would love to hear how you're thinking about that, especially in this moment in time where that forward thinking user adoption piece may be slowed down as compared to prospects from a few months ago. Yeah, it's a good question. You you have to you have to take these things into consideration, right? Like everything that we're building, whether it's within Canary Labs, whether it's in OSF, the OSF art stuff. It's all predicated on there being a certain level of confidence within Web3, within crypto, within NFTs. And, you know, for for there to be mass adoption or for there to be like price appreciation, you not only need retail investors to, to be involved, but you also need institutional investors to be involved for, the, for those big tickets, right? So when you have things like this, it makes, like, we're also focused on like mass adoption and, you know, get more Web2 people into Web3 and let's get like, you know, let's get all these guys involved. And I feel like we make so many strides in achieving that. And then you just have, you know, this huge event like this. And anyone who is on the fence about joining crypto or three or NFTs, they'll see a headline like this and they'll, you know, they'll potentially scare them away scare them away for life. And, you know, that's for us, that's like the that's the risk or that's the consideration. It's like, well, you had this huge growth period over 2021 and parts of 22, but then you've had these events, which I think is turning people the other way. And I guess the question is like, you know, if you keep having these things, are we how long is it going to take before we do get mass adoption? How long is it going to take before people do feel comfortable with using crypto, before people do feel comfortable making the transition between Web 2 to Web 3? And how long does that take for us to be able to, you know, keep going and keep running what we want to run and achieve? It's always interesting for me in these moments to reflect on how binary it can feel as between people who are in crypto and those who aren't. So, for example, people who are crypto native when it comes to their conviction and their desire to stay and build and be proponents of these principles, that conviction is definitely not threatened by things that happen in the macro economy. And in fact, I'd say with hits, the conviction even doubles because there's a sense that crypto is not the problem. It's actually the solution. And a chance, the only chance to reorganize the economic foundation that we're all working on so that these types of liabilities don't spring up uh, in the future. And on the other hand, you have people who may see or feel that tentatively or not at all. And so when events like FTX happen that cause crypto natives to double down, it pushes that other group of people further away. And I think that while the principles that are underlying the core aspects of crypto, at least for me, are the truth in that it gets us closer 
to this ideal of equality of opportunity than any other economic theory or configuration that I've seen. That when we're talking about mass adoption, it's not going to be a journey of truth, right? That is instead a matter of self-interest. Hopefully with some of these principles hiding in the background. And that becomes more difficult when you have the situation where scams are up and the market is down. So all that's to say more of a paradox to be managed than a problem to be solved, but I would love some of your thoughts there and what you think would be helpful at least on the mass adoption front, given some of those dynamics at play? Yeah, I just think um, one thing that I actually do believe and feel strongly about is there needs to be some kind of like proper regulation in the stuff. And, you know, that will allow institutions to invest. It will allow more people to partake in a safe, in a safer manner. Like and by regulation, I don't mean like, oh, let's collect like everyone's names and addresses and, you know, store private data and all that kind of stuff. I mean, like, you know, let's have some actual like rules around uh, safe advertising and communication of things. Like you know, sh- people should post if they have if they have a stake in something like a shilling, or um, if they're promoting something. Like people you know, should 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 use the correct like way to advertise things. And there are like advertising laws, right? In, in the traditional world, you have you can say certain things, you can't say certain things. You have to disclose certain things. Like we should have all of that in crypto because that's the kind of thing that like doesn't like steal your data or anything like that, or the stuff that people are worried about who champion decentralization, but it does create a safer environment for retail investors. And that can go even further to, to institutions where it's like, this is what Binance are talking about now. Like you should be able to sh- have and show a proof of reserves. Like think about how much regulation there is in the banking industry where people need to have like um, certain capital ratios, minimum capital ratios by, by law and keep certain things in order. So you don't have these situations where it causes a bank run or it causes, you know, these panic moments and, a lot of these laws came in after the financial crisis in 2009 for the, for the banking industry. So, you know, I think these same things could come into the crypto world and it would have saved us in these situations. Like it would have saved it in, in FTX situation because they wouldn't have been able to like borrow so much against this token that isn't, doesn't really have any, you know, inherent value. And I think this is the kind of stuff that I think just needs to exist for there to be greater adoption in this industry to kind of like take off a bit more. So, Shifting from one controversy to another, would love to hear your thoughts both as an artist and as a trader in the space on the recent controversies regarding NFT royalties. Well, one, what do you think an ideal resolution would be? But perhaps more importantly, what do you think is the resolution that the market will force based on the conversations that you've been having um, and the different interests that are at play? Yeah, I think I think you phrased that question really interestingly because I think there are two different things at play here. There's the, what's the, what's the thing that we'd all like to have in the ideal world? That's really good for creators and collectors and the whole community. And then what's the actual reality of the things that we'll end up with, given that this is like a free market and there's competition and I think royalties are a great thing. I think it actually aligns creators and collectors with the same incentives. I think it prevents this idea of creators coming in, taking in huge proceeds at mint. Like 
now creators are going to be incentivized to like maximize their initial mint price, right? Because they're not going to benefit from any royalties. That's a bad thing because they're taking in all this money out front without having delivered anything on their projects. Whereas if the bulk of the money was made from royalties, like it, like what happened with um, Yuga Labs, then you're incentivized to keep the project going and running so you can generate these royalties, right? So I think it was a good it was a good mechanism to actually benefit or align creator and collector incentives. For artists, I think it's great. Like if you're if you're a you know if you're a, an emerging artist and you sell a piece for a low amount, so let's say you sell your Genesis piece, your first piece for a low amount, and then in five years' time you really blow up and you become big, and that piece resells for millions of dollars. In a world with no royalties, you, you don't see any benefit from that. In a world with royalties, you do see benefit from that. And I guess the question is like, should the artist see benefit from it? And I personally, I think I think they should. Like I would say that as I would obviously say that as an artist, but I'd also say that as a collector, like, you know, like someone that's created this thing and, and has done really well, I think they should be able to benefit from some of their own success. And it's difficult for artists because for collections, you can say, well, maybe like Yuga Labs can retain 10% of their supply in the next drop. And if that goes up in price, then they can benefit from that. But it's difficult to do that with as an artist, unless you're selling editions, right? How can you do it with like a one-of-one? Like, am I going to retain 20% of this one-of-one? Like, how does that work? So I think personally, I think royalty is a great thing for our projects. We've used royalties to like pay our Discord mods. We've used royalties to run events. We've used royalties to build our websites. We've used royalties to pay devs to do like ad hoc dev work. It's been like, it's all been things that have funded the maintenance of our projects, which I think has been really helpful. So for us, we're now, I, well, the next part of the thing I'm going to say is that I actually think royalties will go to zero. I think it's just like, it's just economics 101, right? You have one company in there who's a monopoly and they can charge whatever they want. And then as more competitors enter, the price goes down. And here we're talking about the price for the buyer like the or the seller, whoever it is, the market participant. So the first thing they do is they reduce royalties because that's no impact to the marketplaces themselves. So I think royalties will go to zero. I think marketplace fees will eventually go to zero. And it's hard to fight that. That's just the reality. And I think, you know, rather than sitting here and complain, and I'm not saying complain because I think, you know, people have a right to fight for royalties and I do think they're a great thing. But I think you have to also just understand that like in a market full of rational participants, when you have a lot of competition and that increases, the, the price will go down and inevitably royalties will go to zero. I think the best solution for it is to create a contract standard where royalties are enforced. I don't know if that's possible. Like I don't have a ton of dev knowledge, but I don't know, let's say you had like ERC 722 or something like that, which had built-in royalties and there was no way to bypass it. Then I think that's, you know, that's the solution. That's the way to do it. It just would be difficult for all the existing projects that that are currently out there. They would have to maybe migrate to that contract, something like that. I'm not really sure how it would work and it would mess up the provenance, but I think that's the best solution. But, you know, I have no idea how possible that is and, and how far away we would be from a solution like that. Yeah, it's interesting to think of over time the dynamics will play out such that there is pressure to implement that change at the protocol level. Um, and if not, so as far as I understand it, currently there are some solutions at the platform level in that, you know, for example, on super rare, like if you list on super rare, you're only selling that piece on super rare and they have, and again, this is where my dev knowledge is limited, but some type of wrapper or something that does enforce royalties. So it may be that, you know, the artists, if, if the change is slower to happen at the protocol level, because that goes through a huge governance process and takes a bunch of time that you could see the emergence of plat- more platforms like Super Rare at maybe a mid-market level that 
and and I don't know if this is something even OpenSea is considering doing as well, but it seems like the the royalty conversation isn't isn't quite over because like you said, how how does it speak to the creative empowerment piece if artists aren't able to participate in how their work generates value? That's kind of the exact same mechanics of the of the system that we have now. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a tough one. I think I think the way Super Red does it is really good and the thing with Super Rare, Super Rare is a bit special. I think it just attracts people who want to pay royalties, right? Like, like the collectors on Super Rare understand the importance of it. They're people who like and support artists and people will always honor royalties on that platform. And I think the other nice thing about Super Rare is like, yes, I mean, theoretically, you could, you could trade your Super Rare one of one on, um, you know, a different platform, but no one does, right? All the liquidity is, um, uh, is on Super Rare itself. So I think that's, you know, it's a, it's a situation where you just have people who are willing to honor it and pay it. And I guess like art and collectibles maybe are two different things. And in the collectibles market, you have kind of like more active traders basically. And they're just trying to minimize fees as much as they can. And they don't really care about any of the other stuff. So, you know, it's two things that are, that are maybe slightly different, I think. But I don't know, like maybe, uh, maybe someone can create a platform or a mo- another solution is maybe someone can create a marketplace that enforces royalties and, um, you know, puts other pl- marketplaces on a restricted list, which is kind of what OpenSea are looking at doing. It's not really like a decentralized solution because you're having to like allow people and not allow people and all that kind of stuff, but it's, it's definitely an option. Yeah, I love what you said there about different solutions for different NFT markets because it highlights the fact that even though we're talking about this shared piece of open ledger technology, that the universe of potential NFT applications is really broad. The umbrella is really broad so as to incorporate many different markets underneath it that, like all markets, each operate according to their own specifications, their own rules. And you are someone who is working across several of those markets in building your brand, your emerging Web3 media empire. And I think you are one of the few uh, and definitely one of the first who is doing that, which is really exciting. So I'd love it if you could talk to us about different components of the OSF ecosystem and how that's evolved since you began. I read somewhere that your thinking changed a bit from the first profile pick collection that you were focusing on, which was DGENs, to the project that is currently the flagship of the brand, which is Wrecked Guys. So I'd love if you could share with us uh, how your thinking evolved to funnel into the different approach to Wrecked. Yeah, so we started out, DJs and Regens was our first project. We launched that in July 2021. And to be honest, we had no idea what we were doing. We were just like, hey, this, you know, it was like the birth of PFP projects. It was just two months or three, yeah, it was just two months after the apes came out and we were like, why don't we try a hand at creating an NFT project? And, you know, we just thought we could create like a bunch of PFPs that was like mainly art based and, you know, just like do that and, and sell it. And when we did that, we realized the community wanted all these different things and wanted so much. And it was, we definitely had bitten off more than we could chew. And our original idea was like, let's make this like a comic book thing or like a cartoon thing. And we just realized we had no or zero experience in any of that stuff. So it didn't go very well. It's actually a complete disaster for, for a few months and then at the beginning of 2022 we were like okay how do we how do we fix this like how do we transition this from 
something that we tried and basically failed at to something that maybe we're better at doing. So that's when we kind of like thought about the idea of the DGN's access pass and and we made that pivot from it being like a PFP project into kind of more like an NFT community. I don't, I don't want to use the term alpha group because I think in alpha groups, people are like, hey, let's all buy this, let's sell this, let's make trade recommendations. And that's not what we do. We actually provide balanced arguments for each thing. And the idea is that we give people the tools and the ability to go away and make their own decisions for themselves. We just teach people how to actually think about coming to those conclusions. So you know, now we've written like almost 200 different deep dive NFT reports uh, within that DGENS platform. If you, in the access pass, you get access to all these reports on the website. And there's a really cool community there as well. For a lot of people we used to come across within our old jobs and, and, and new people that we've met and a lot of smart minds are thinking that Discord, which is uh, a good community that we've been running. So that's DGENS. We also have Rect Guy, which kind of like the way it came about, it's kind of like a, not an accident, but it definitely turned into something we never thought it would. But, you know, I had the idea, I started creating art and stuff in probably about a year ago in October last year. And I had this recurring character in, in, in the art. So I thought, oh, it'd be cool to like make this thing a PFP as an extension of my art, nothing more. And we actually made it a free drop for all DGENs holders, DGENs regions holders. So it wasn't like a payment or anything. We didn't want to extract, um, extract any money out of the system. So we created that. It was just meant to be like a fun art project. And I guess like we named it Wrecked Guy. I'm not, I'm not really sure why. We just kind of came up with that name. And by the time we ended up launching it, it took us a while. It ended up being when crypto had a, a big crash and markets were selling off. So I think people kind of just like resonated with it as like a piece of like culture or a piece of art or just something that was a bit different to everything else out there. And you know, there's so many profile picture projects out there, which are like pastel colored backgrounds and like cute animals and all this kind of stuff. And there's loads of it. Right. And so I, I really wanted to make something different. I was like, why don't we flip this around on its head and have like black backgrounds and like bright neon outlines and, and aggressive animations and, you know, just make something that's quite unique. And, you know, I really still believe that now, like there isn't really any other PFP project that's comparable to Red Guy, at least visually, like everything else out there is still quite samey to me. And this is something that's very different and strikes out. And I think that's one of the reasons why, again, like people flocked to it or felt felt they could resonate with it. So that's the other thing we've been focusing on. And I think the idea for that is to just keep pushing it as like an art-based project, as something that's like potentially could be a piece of culture to remember from this year and um, build it as a brand, like build build the Rect brand as a thing. We've had two big events this year. We had one at NFT NYC. We had one at NFT London, which was really good as well. And we have a few more plans, I think, next year, which are quite exciting for us. So that's the plan with that. And then, yeah, the last thing we have is the advisory slash consultancy part of the business. And, you know, Mando and I are, Canary Labs is Mando, myself, and a third person um, called NFT Goat, who is someone that we both know very well that who Mando went to university with, I've, I've worked with, and he's focusing on the whole, like, if you're a Web2 brand or a legacy brand trying to enter Web3, like, what are the steps you should take? And we've, we've just seen it done wrong so many times. And I feel like we're very familiar with the trials and tribulations of it because of having been both collectors and creators in the space. So um, we thought that would be an interesting area to, uh, to dive into. So you mentioned the unique visuals in the Rect Guy project. And one thing I've noticed is that those thematically relate to the style that you use in your personal artwork. And for those of you who may not be familiar, 
OSF is a very talented and successful artist in his own right. Um, he has sold a number of individual pieces on Super Rare and continues to just be prolific in that regard. So I'm curious as to what inspires you visually and maybe even particularly with respect to this style. Yeah, so I used to do a lot of digital art when I was in my in my teens. I was on Deviant Art and I created like it was it looked it all looked different, but it was kind of it had maybe some similar themes like you know, I'd take cities and put like planets and stuff behind them and create like these, I don't know, like imaginary like places basically. And I like, I think I still incorporate, incorporate those themes now where it's like, I like the idea of like creating unrealistic or, you know, places that are maybe in a parallel universe that you don't really see in real life, but maybe exists out there. And like a big influence for me is, I don't know if you ever watched Stranger Things, but like, I love, it's one of my favorite TV series and you have this whole idea of like the upside down, which is like the alternate reality to the existing reality. And I guess that's what I do with like the wrecked idea of something like when I make a, a wrecked city of London, it's like, Hey, this is what London usually looks like, but this is like what London looks like when it gets to like a certain time of night and it's like a different environment, all that kind of stuff. So that's like a theme that I think I've taken from when I used to digital art, like 15 years ago, I guess now. The other thing is like, I like to try and like, find a way to provoke reactions or like a certain feeling. Like I want people to look at that piece and feel a certain way. And that feeling is like, maybe like this makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable, but I want to like keep looking at it or seeing it. Or I might be like, maybe I'm seeing something that I shouldn't see. Just like that whole, like, Oh, let me look twice. or let me look again at this, this piece. And just like, there's more to it than meets the eye. I want people to like stare at it for a long time. And so it's those feelings of like feeling maybe slightly uncomfortable, maybe like, feeling like you're looking at something that you shouldn't see. Maybe it's like, I know this stuff goes down at nighttime, but I'm but I'm pretending I'm not going to acknowledge it or I'm aware of it. And it's crazy that someone's like putting it in a piece that, you know, so explicitly, like all those kinds of feelings I'd like to try and incorporate and, and have people feel. And I guess that's like, that's the, that's the mission. It's like a subconscious thing on my part. And I definitely have a lot of influences. Like, you know, I'm a huge fan of the way X copy incorporates the, the glitch style in his art and his use of his, his color palette and that's definitely a big influence on, on my work and he's definitely a hero i really like alpha centauri kid ack like i think he is really good at just putting in like this feeling of like pain or i don't know how to really put it but like this his feeling his pieces just, just hit really hard it's like this this pain that like comes through in his pieces and so that's a, re- a really big inspiration for me as well and the way he like gamifies a lot of his stuff so you know th- those are two artists right you look at their pieces and you're like okay I can either like really, really resonate or relate with this, or it's making me stare at it for a long time and think three or four times about what this actually resembles, or it's just like reflecting something which is like, you know, the other side of our daily lives where it's like, this is like not the dark side of life, but like a different side of life that we're not always thinking about basically, but is actually a real part of our realities. I love it. I love hearing all these details about context and backstory. It's always so interesting to me. And I think it creates for a richer experience and allows people to go back to the work and consider it with new perspective that can prompt new forms of inspiration or like a feeling sense in relation to the artist or the art. Um, So I think that's really cool and 
also over time, and I'm speaking with another artist about this, that understanding that type of information adds to the provenance, not only of an individual work, but also the lore or understanding of the artist in the market over time. So super cool. Um, Switching gears, I'd love to hear a bit about your time at Barclays. Maybe you can talk about how, on the one hand, there may have been things that were challenging, but on the other, things that you appreciated and have been useful for you, especially in what you're doing today. And on a somewhat related note, I'm curious to know whether throughout that time you were pursuing art as a hobby, which may have primed the jump into NFTs when this new market emerged, or if that was something that happened later on as a result of a different catalyst coming into your journey in digital art. Yeah, it's a good question. I actually... You know, I never, I didn't hate my job. I <laughs> actually really liked it for a long time and I, I learned a lot from it. It taught me a lot of different skill sets, like a lot of soft skills that are so important and actually very transferable to this like crypto and NFT and Web3 world. So I'm definitely very grateful for that and great, very grateful for all the people I work with there. I think the parts of it that I didn't like was like, you know, having to answer to people and not being able to do the things that you want to do. And, you know, it's, it's a very like client facing business. So it's kind of like, well, I want to do this trade and I have this view on this company and I want to put this position on, but I can't because I have to like satisfy this client or do what this guy says. And, you know, I just hate, it. I just got sick of the whole, like smiling and darling is what we used to call it. And just trying to like, please so many different people. I was like, I just, I'm just so done with that. So that was the part that I didn't love, but the actual like trading itself and, you know, learning about how to analyze credit and all these, and learning about how to take risk and, and manage risk. All these things were just like such a priceless experience for me. And that's the part that I really enjoyed. And, you know, if I didn't, if I didn't come into NFTs, I think I would have maybe have been gone to, you know, moved from a bank to like a hedge fund or something like that and been in a, in a position where I could just like take my own risk and, and, and be in charge of it. But the art side of things, like honestly, after I turned 18, I went to university and I just stopped doing it. I just, I never really thought it would ever thought it would be a career opportunity. I just enjoyed doing it as a hobby, but you know, I just, I just end up having other interests that like when you go to university, you lose a lot of your free time. And most of my free time was spent playing sports and going out drinking and partying and all that kind of stuff. So, um, I just didn't really have time for it anymore. And when I started working at Barclays as a junior trader, it's a very time intensive job. Like you're working from you're getting as a junior, you're probably getting in the office at like six, six thirty AM and you're finishing at like six thirty or 7 PM. So you, I really didn't have any time for any of that stuff. And I just didn't touch it for a long time. It wasn't until COVID 2020, so eight years into into me having worked at Barclays, where you know everyone had so much free time during COVID during the weekends and evenings. So actually, like I painted, I got a um, a blank canvas and some paint and just painted something just like completely randomly. I think that was my first like, oh, that I you know, I forgot how much I enjoyed doing this stuff. Like I I had that feeling, and then a few months later, I just I entered the NFTs mainly to like trade and collect rather than to actually create while I was still at Barclays. And and again, at this point, I still didn't think I would ever be a creator. And I, I think I minted my first piece of foundation in October last year while I was still at Barclays. And I just enjoyed the feeling and thrill of it so much that I knew that it was something that I wanted to do 
more and follow more rather than this like career in finance that I had been doing for, for all this time. I think that's a really strong testament to the power of the creator or the creative ability within everybody and something that can inspire people no matter what background they come from, that they can come into NFTs and just pick up a a pen or whatever tool and start to create. So I think that your journey is kind of, and probably is, um, an inspiration for a lot of the people that you speak with and that are in your ecosystem. Uh, one other thing you said before, I want to move on to something else, but you know, you, you mentioned the, the skills and the training that you received, just being able to act as a trader for however many years at Barclays. Do you think that web three offers opportunities for individuals to on their own recreate the fundamental aspects of that knowledge, that foundation to actually be operating in the space with, you know, with a skill set. So not blind, kind of understanding markets um, on a more foundational level, because ultimately it is a market, even though there are elements of it that may seem shiny and may seem different, that there there are market fundamentals that I think are also really important and that help people in making it a career. So but at the same time, we also live in this open age of information where a lot of the tools, you know, and, and DGENs, I think, does a lot of that as well with the reporting that you guys put out and, you know, just the the conversations that you're always having. So maybe kind of speak to that ability to that you've seen to kind of for people on their own who are resourceful to recreate that knowledge that you gained in the institutional setting. Yeah, I think uh, the nice thing about Web3 is and maybe it's a bit of a meme to say this, but anyone can really come in and and do something, like make something of themselves because it's so new, right? Everything is so new. This whole digital economy is very new. And if we're still talking about mass adoption, it is still very new and early. And we're still talking about wanting mass adoption, I mean. And so you can come in and start anything here and there isn't really anything to compare compare against. It's not like, oh, you know, compare this trader to the last, like, 30 years of traders or compare this artist to the last like 50 years of artists. Like it's difficult to really make those comparisons because you're just starting in this whole new world. And I know there are some parallels between this market and the traditional art market or this market and traditional finance, but there are also a lot of new things and new aspects. And ultimately look like if we take the art, if we take art as an example, there are crypto native collectors who are spending millions of dollars on crypto art for reasons that the traditional art market can't get their head around. And now they can sit there and be like, okay, well, you know, these guys are wrong and that's a dumb way to spend money and all this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, like it's keeps happening and it's persisted for for years now and it will keep happening because that's where a lot of wealth exists now. It exists in crypto and these people will buy what they want to buy and what they deem to be significant. So like that's a good example of just something where you can you can come into the space and you can have zero experience in as an artist or in the art world or anything or, or study art history and all that kind of stuff. But you can actually succeed because you do have knowledge of the the culture and, and like more of the now and, and less of the of what was before. And I think that translates across lots of different things, whether you want to come in and like be a trader. Yes, I've, I've seen like so many people become be successful traders in crypto and they don't, you know, they haven't been to like Ivy League schools and had like um, done an MBA in finance, all this kind of stuff that all these investment banks require from you know, these days to, to be part of their cohort. So yeah, I really believe it. it's just like, I, I really have this belief that there are a lot of very smart people in the world, but they don't always get the same opportunity set because of 
maybe their education or whether it's like a financial thing for them and or maybe they're just not been in the right place or grown up in the right part of the world but i think people are just like i do think like a certain level of intelligence or smartness comes from within and not necessarily environmental factors and i think web3 is an amazing platform to actually enter and succeed in that and we've seen people do that i love that i couldn't agree more I really want to talk about your friendship turned business partnership with Mando. It seems, you know, on one level, you guys are just get along obviously really well and are always having a lot of fun. And I think that is an energetic quality that contributes to the cohesion of the ecosystem and draws people in. Um, you know, I mean, I think that that's, again, one of the components that is unique here is that ultimately people are really committed to having fun and making money and, and that's important. So uh, talk to me kind of about how you guys started your friendship. Was it immediate? And then as you started to get into NFTs, was that with Mando, um, and how did the kind of conversations around becoming business partners come about? Yes, yeah, so Mando and I have known each other for about 10 years. We actually met at Barclays. So I was a junior trader on the desk and he joined a year after me. So we, we sat next to each other. And, you know, when you're on a trading desk, you sit like very shoulder to shoulder, you all sit very close. So you get very close with your team very quickly. And we sat next to each other for about five or six years until I moved to New York. So we became, you know, pretty much best friends through work. And, you know, like some of your closest friends are the people that you work with, especially when you're in an environment where you're sitting next to each other 12 hours a day, five days a week, and you're possibly doing evening client things and maybe even working on weekends. So we saw each other more than we saw our respective others. And that was for like many, many years. So we became very, very good friends through that. And I think what was a bit special about that relation, well, what's a bit special about the relationship we have is it's a relationship that came from a work environment, but also a work environment where we were working very, very closely together at the same time in a stressful environment as well. Like being on a training floor was very stressful. And whether it was, you know, me making, making, losing a lot of money, whether it was him, whether we were backing up for senior traders when we were younger, or whether we were both co-managing large amounts of risk together when we, when we were more senior, we've kind of like been through it all. And so we, we entered this NFT, he was actually, we, we go back and we argue about this because I always say I'm the first one to get into crypto, but to be fair to him, he was definitely the first one to get into NFTs. And so he was like, you should really look at NFTs. And I saw he you know, made this great flip on a, on a one-of-one piece. So I just had to get involved. The, the trader in me wanted to get involved and we started just collecting and you know, trading things around together. And then eventually we decided to, you know, let's just do it together. Like we're basically doing the same thing and we have a complementary skill set and I wouldn't, I would never, I really would never do that with anyone, but I felt confident doing it with, with Mando because we'd already been in these environments. We'd been in stressful environments where we worked very closely together, had arguments, but come back from them and where we're not really like, either of us are not really afraid to speak our minds and, and we know we get along well and all that, all that kind of stuff. So because it was a relationship that was born out of a stressful work environment, I knew that I could like also take that friendship that was born out of that environment back into like, okay, let's work together and, you know, start Canary Labs and do everything else that we've gone on to do. But it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very, I think we're both very grateful and, and in a very fortunate position because it's very difficult to find friends like that. And it's very difficult to, you know, be able to fully trust the other person. And when there's a lot of money involved and all this kind of stuff, you're really putting your trust into the other person. And I think that's the thing that makes us successful. We just have this like 
complete level of trust and we know we've done it for for a decade now and i don't think there's anything that would ever you know be able to come between us because i think we we both hold the same set of values which is great and um, you know we both have as you mentioned like it's, it's fun working with him we both have good banter like for me being one thing i miss about the trading floor is like i always enjoy the people i work with and there's always a lot of banter there we always had a lot of fun even on the most stressful days it was i'm always the person to like make a joke about things even if i'm losing money and that kind of stuff i think that's what gets me through the day so we've definitely brought that culture into into our working environment now and it's uh yeah i can I can really put my hand in my heart and say it's been a lot of fun do you guys find a natural division of call it labor but not really labor but responsibilities um you know obviously there's you're doing a lot you have all these different components of the ecosystem you're hosting a show on rug radio you're coming on podcasts like this do you guys are you deliberate in how you think about splitting the work the leadership work as between uh you two and are there any you know skill sets maybe that kind of are more naturally yours versus more naturally his that complement each other in all of it in the process of uh, thought leadership, hiring, all of it? Yeah, definitely. That's a good question. I actually, another thing to add is I think we both have very complementary skill sets. So like, and we do split our workload. We do, we, we both of us focus on certain things and different things. And, you know, Michael is, is very analytical. He's very good at problem solving. He's very good at, you know, like speaking to people and finding out where problems are and finding out how to address them. And we, he focuses more on that kind of stuff. Like for me, I guess maybe I'm a bit more creative and I spend a lot of time with the community and in the discord and especially all that kind of stuff. So we've definitely split our workload to suit our skill sets and also to like, you know, satisfy the things that we enjoy. Like there's certain things that he, he enjoys more than I do. And the certain things that I enjoy more than he do. Like, you know, he's not going to sit there on discord all day, just like making memes and kind of like bantering with the community but he's going to be very good at like writing up a whole proposal of like an analytic deep dive into some NFT project or maybe a consultancy project or something like that. But, you know, we, we try and help each other out where we can. Like Mando had a kid a couple of weeks ago. So I've been taking out some of his workload. Like I was away in the summer and, and Michael took up some of my workload. So yeah, we go back and forth, but we definitely have the areas that we excel in, I think. How are you thinking about taking venture capital? I think, and I've heard you talk about this before, there are challenges that projects can face when looking to scale by taking venture along traditional startup equity dynamics. Because unlike traditional startups in NFTs, you have a core set of permissionless equity holders, uh, namely the, the people that have purchased your NFT drop. And sometimes when you take on capital later on, you can have incentives that are not aligned between your new investors and your initial holders who are really your initial investors. So talk to us about how you're thinking about venture capital and any other thoughts generally that you might have there. Yeah, we... um on the outside capital thing, we go back and forth a lot, you know, sometimes because right now there's just three of us and then we have, you know, we have a moderated community managers. We have some people helping us out with a few different things, but the bulk of the work is just between the three of us with three equity holders of, of Canary Labs. And we work pretty hard, you know, like we're, we basically probably pretty much work through 24 hours of the day because I wake up pretty early. 
like at six or seven and start working. And then Mando wakes up usually a bit later, but he'll work late into the hours, even like US time. So we're all just like working super hard. I'm like, should we just raise some money and get more people to, to come on board and all that kind of stuff? I think the problem is when you raise, and this is something that you alluded to when you asked the question, when you raise, you now have your investors to appease and satisfy and it changes, you know, it changes like the intentions, it changes it changes the incentives, it changes the way you can run your project because you're, you now have to deliver value to your investors, right? Whereas right now it's just like, it's just us and we just want to, we're in a fortunate position where we can focus on delivering value to the holders and if we can build this IP and, and everything and build everything up to, to do really well, I think the value for us becomes in the future value of that brand. So, you know, we, we're trying our best to not go down the route of raising. I think at some point in time, if we want to grow, which we do, we will have to raise. I don't think we're going to, we're not going to go down the line of like, hey, we're going to raise VC money and then just do like a 100K collection of like new rec guys and all this kind of stuff. Like, I, like I've seen this happen time and time again. I just don't think that's the right way to take something forward. But could we raise a... I don't know, like at the DGENs level, so we can hire more devs to create like a better website with better analytics and have more analysts and um, that kind of stuff. Yeah, like that could be a potential possibility and opportunity. And I think um, there's an opportunity that exists there. Like, could we raise, I don't know, could we could we raise at rec guy level to create a stronger brand in terms of merchandise and events and make rec like this big global brand? Yeah, that's an option. That's definitely an option. How would we monetize that? Well. I don't think it would be from selling NFTs. It would have to be from selling other products and we have to figure out if like we could get those rewards and incentives aligned with the holders and the investors. So those are all the things to consider. But as it stands, I just don't think we have the need to raise. And I think we're able to do the things that we need to do within our team. And at the end of the day, like it just comes from us working hard and we're happy to keep doing that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's definitely a community forward holder first approach and mirrors a lot of my own instincts as to a crypto native way to think about VC in the NFT context. On a related note, let's talk for a minute about leadership. What does that mean to you and who have been your sources of inspiration as leaders, whether in crypto or otherwise throughout the course of your life? Yeah, I, I probably, the biggest influence in terms of leadership, the biggest influence probably has been my dad. Like ever since I was young, he's always been like, you know, you've got to be a leader. You've got to like set the trend and all this stuff. And I don't know, I think I've, I kind of have been like coached by him or just from the way I've been raised to like think like a leader or just like try and go for these leadership positions. And I kind of, I've always done that as a kid, like whether it's like captaining sports teams or being like president of the student council, all that kind of stuff. Like that's all, I was like that guy who did all that stuff when I was a kid, which now I'm thinking about it, like it feels kind of cringe. Um, but that, that was always me. And like, I was always like, you know, in these situations, I'd always naturally gravitate towards taking the lead because it has also always felt natural for me to do so. And I think when I was younger and less uh mature i think i wanted to do it for like the clout like i wanted to do it like oh cool like, look at me like i'm like the big guy here and like i'm the leader and you know i'm, I'm 
all the eyes are on me, like for the attention. Like I think that's what I used to do it for when I was younger. I think as I got older and grew up, I realized I didn't really care about that stuff anymore. And I was just kind of being a bit stupid. And, but I realized that being in a position of leadership where eyes are on you and people are following what you're doing and, and seeing what you're doing, it gives you a lot of power and it gives you a lot of power to actually educate. And whether it's to tell a story or whether it's to explain certain things, whatever it is, it, it, it puts, it puts you in a position where you can actually educate and help people. And that's something that I've found over the years that I actually, that gives me a lot of like happiness or like I feel quite a lot of reward from it. Like, I don't know, like if I remember like if I was in like a, if I was like captain of the cricket team and I was like, Oh, this guy is not very confident in his game, but I gave him a shot to to bowl or whatever. And he got a wicket and he felt really good about it. But like, Oh yeah. Like that makes you feel really good that I gave him that shot. And he was able to do that. If it's you no know, in this web three world, if I write a thread and someone's like, wow, that was really helpful. Like this, you know, fixed my mood and was able to help me invest better. Or I missed, missed getting hacked because I did, took these precautions, whatever it is. Like that's like, oh, wow, I had a really, really positive impact on other people. And I was only able to get that viewership from having this position of leadership. And I think that's how I think about it now. It's like, I don't really like care about like having like the clout or the focus or the intention or that kind of stuff. But I do really feel like, you know, if I put something, if I put some good content out there that people genuinely find helpful, I actually personally find that quite rewarding. And I find that that's like, for me, that's like a lot of the motivation to do the, you know, do all this kind of stuff to like, you know, show that actually, oh, you know, like crypto world isn't so bad or, you know, there are things that you can do or like, you know, if people are out there losing money because they don't have to trade or invest, like, no, you, you can do it. Like you just have to think about it and take the right steps. You just need to be coached properly and, and all that kind of stuff. So that's not meant to be like a patronizing thing, but, you know, I, I hope people have found some of the stuff that I've put out helpful and it means a lot to me when people do find it helpful. It means a lot to me when people say it's had a positive, positive impact on their lives. On the other side of leadership can be this sense of heavy is the head that wears the crown. And leaders can and often do face the challenges of handling both a lot of scrutiny and also sometimes negative emotions from other people. How has your experience with that been? Yeah, so you, you have to be really careful as you get as you get bigger, I guess, uh, you have to be a bit careful, especially if you get big very quickly, you have to be careful about the stuff that you put out there. And, you know, I haven't really, I haven't really faced that much backlash. I think this year, maybe last year I did on, on some things and, you know, I realized it's like, you know, when you, when you're a Twitter account and you have 5,000 followers and you tweet about something that you just bought and you say, I really like it for this, this and this reason, and then you go and sell it, like, so many people do that, right? So many people do that, but they never really get called out for it because they have a very small um, followership. When you're an account with 100,000 followers or 200,000 followers, it's a different story because you're now like, you had this power to like influence lots of different people and there's maybe a bit more like malicious, malicious maybe is the wrong word, but a bit more like malintent there. And so I think like for me, I feel like actually as I've gotten bigger, I've received less of that hate or fud or backlash, whatever you want to call it, because I think I've been conscious of like, okay, now I have to be different in the way that I behave and react and all these sorts of things. Right. Like if you look at my early tweets from back, from back in the day, I might've been like, Hey, like I just bought a board a for these reasons. Um, this, this, and this, like, I think this is, this could, could potentially have a lot of value. 
I would never tweet. I mean, I wouldn't tweet something like that now if I just bought something because people, you know, I have to I have to be aware that people are following and, and tracking me and doing the things that I do, and I have to be aware that even if it's not my intent to influence people, they might they may end up copying me, and I don't want to be the reason for anyone to lose money or um, or copy trade. And it doesn't matter. Again, it doesn't. It's not actually about my intent anymore. It's about the fact that people will do it anyway, and so I have to be aware of that. So, you know, it goes back to the the working in finance thing, right? You work in a very heavy, heavy, heavily regulated industry and you have to take all these different you know, licenses which teach you ethics and all this kind of stuff. So you're aware, you know what's good and what's bad. And I have an understanding of that and I have an understanding of how that's more important as you grow. So I feel like in the last few months and most of this year, like I haven't, I've been fortunate enough, touch wood, not to, to get much backlash, but I think I've, that's because I've been deliberately very conscious about how I behave and act and and interact as I grow. And I think anyone who has a big following really has a responsibility to do that in the right way. Final question, 2023, what are you most excited about for the future of Brecht uh, and the things that you have in the pipeline? Yeah, it's a good question. I think we have um, we have a couple of interesting things coming up for, for Rect and, and Rect Guy. I think in 2023, you know, 2022 is about is the year this whole concept of Rect was born, this whole ecosystem was born and people starting to join the community and, and get wind of it. I think 2023 is when I would really like the that concept and idea and culture to, you know, be a bit more mainstream, like be bigger than just this small echo chamber and NFT Twitter or on Discord. Like be a lot bigger as, as more of like a uh, a global brand, I would say. And I think we have some ideas, we've taken certain steps to try and achieve that and I'm definitely really, that's the thing that excites me the most out of everything that we're doing. That's the one thing that really, really excites me the most because I really do feel like there's something there. And, you know, like I said, I never intended for, the, for there to be anything there, but as soon as we made those original images, I just got that feeling that it was going to be something special. And since then it's just been this you know crazy journey, but every time I look at it or every time I interact with people in our community and people who've supported us and, and followed us, et cetera, I just know some things you just know you, some things you just know in the back of your head. And I think that's one of them. I think it's something that we can definitely make really big if we play our cards right. And uh, I think we will. I think that's a great note on which to end it. OSF, thank you so much for being here. It's always delightful to chat with you. And I love hearing your opinions on all of these things. Until next time, everyone listening, thank you as well. And uh, be free. Be free.